Welcome to Grace. Really glad everybody is here and awake and uh, alive and good. And uh, welcome to Grace. Hey, I'm really excited this morning to do just a bit of a review and a short preview. Uh, we are jumping back into a sermon series that we began uh, several weeks ago on the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, we are going to jump right back into that as we begin a new section in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 8 and 9. We call it the power of the king. You can find the outline uh, there behind me, just kind of where we've been, a real quick review. So in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus is presented to us as a king. Jesus is presented to us as the king of the Jews, Israel's Messiah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And what Matthew does throughout his gospel is make an airtight case that Jesus is indeed Israel's king, Israel's Messiah. So the book begins, you probably remember this from many, many months ago, with a section entitled The Person of the King. In chapters 1 through 4, Matthew makes uh, an airtight case that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, right? We saw his, his birth. We saw his ancestry, that he was born of a kingly lineage. We saw his advent, that though he existed as God, he incarnated himself, right? At Christmas time, he became one of us. We saw his ancestry. We saw his advent. And third, we saw his ambassador, right? We, we, we saw John the Baptist come on the scene and said, this is the guy, right? This is the very son of God. And then we saw Jesus face off with his adversary. Remember that? He goes into the desert and he faces the temptations of Satan and he wins. All of this points us and teaches us about the person of the king. The second major section in the Gospel of Matthew we called the platform of the king. You may remember it. We spent several weeks in it, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5 through 7, the platform of the king, we saw for several weeks this uh, probably most heralded and most well-known sermon of Jesus. Jesus taught us what uh, the type of character and the type of life that those who would enter into his kingdom uh, would look like, right? So we got this great teaching this great sermon from Jesus. We called it the platform of the king. Well, for the next few weeks leading up into Christmas time, we will be entering the third major section in the Gospel of Matthew, and I will call it the power of the king. We saw his person, we saw his platform, and now we see his power. Jesus is going to confirm his claim to be Israel's Messiah through Ten different miraculous and powerful displays of power. See, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew essentially says, let me just tell you what Jesus said. But now, in these two chapters, Matthew is going to say, and let me also show you what he did. Because what he did authenticated what he said, right? And what he, he says and what he does authenticates who he is. He king of Israel, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. You'll see the quote behind me. John Phillips beautifully and accurately, I think, introduces us into chapter 8, which we'll jump into here in a few minutes. He, he says this, the sermon was over, right? The sermon on the mount. The sermon was over, and the astonished multitudes dispersed, and awed disciples accompanied their royal master down the mountain towards the lake. Everyone was digesting his new authoritative teaching and asking, could he be the king of Israel? Yet if he was the king, where was his power? See, words, he writes, were all very well and good. Beautiful words, wonderful words. 
But what Israel needed was not just one who spoke with authority. Israel needed one who acted with power. Doubts remained in the minds of the Jews. So Matthew, in this section, brought together, he brings together a series of mighty miracles performed by the Lord, visible, unmistakable evidences of his kingly power. Because what is a king who has no power, right? And so in this section, verses uh, chapters 8 and 9, we will see the power of Jesus highlighted. I just want to give you a basic overview of the structure of these two chapters. What we see in chapters 8 and 9 in the Gospel of Matthew is uh, three sets of three miracles. Three sets of three miracles, each set followed by Jesus teaching on mission or discipleship. So if you take a look at the chart, it's very simple, right? You get three miracles, then teaching on discipleship. Three miracles, more teaching on discipleship. Three more miracles, plus one, it's actually ten, so four miracles, then it's capped off, you guessed it, by more teaching on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Matthew gives us this structure for a reason. He's teaching us something in the very way that he's organizing his material. This pattern of miracle followed by mission teaches us that Jesus possesses the power of Messiah. He's a powerful king, and therefore, he has the right to call people, including me and including you, to follow him. So, let's take a look at the miracles. Ten miracles overall, three sets of miracles. The first set of miracles, uh, the key word is people, people. The first three miracles deals with three different types of people. We are going to see Jesus perform miracles of healing this morning on a leper. Next, on a centurion or a Roman soldier's servant. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. I'll let you speculate on that yourselves, right? So the first set of miracles deals with people. The second set of miracles we'll see deals with power. What I mean by that is this. We will see three spheres of influence that Jesus uh, has to act powerfully over. In other words, Jesus has dominion, we're going to see in these miracles. He has power to calm the sea. He has power to cast out demons. And he even has the power to forgive our sins. So, miracles of people, miracles of power, and then third, miracles uh, that highlight some problems that existed during that day in Israel. Three problematic responses, if you will. And so we get miracles of people, miracles of of power, and miracles of problems. Well, in between these sets of miracles, we get the call to mission, right? We get the call to discipleship. The first section is in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. It's the first call to discipleship. Here, Jesus is going to talk to two people who say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be your disciple. And he's going to teach them, and he's going to teach us that, you know what? If you want to be a follower of Christ, then Jesus calls for commitment without comfort, commitment without comfort, and commitment without compromise. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the second teaching on discipleship in chapter 9, Matthew records his own response to Jesus. Remember Matthew, the tax collector, right? He is going to give us a a, a little bit of insight into how he became a follower of Jesus. And there we're going to discover that a prerequisite 
to be a follower of Jesus is humble repentance, confession of sin, and faith in Jesus as Savior. And then there's a third section on discipleship in chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And what we learn there is that to be a, a, a follower, a disciple of Jesus, means that we will then be sent out into the mission field, that we will be sent out into the harvest, right? What did Jesus say? The harvest is what? Plentiful, but the workers are few, right? And so therefore, those who follow him will be workers in the harvest. Miracles that show us the power of Jesus, and then a call to discipleship that teaches us a little bit of something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So friends, That's what we have to look forward to in the coming weeks. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Our worship team is going to come up. And we are going to focus our our musical worship on songs that talk about the kingship of Jesus, right? In Matthew, Jesus is presented to us as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Israel's Messiah, worthy of obedience, worthy of following, worthy of worship, and worthy of of placing our faith in him. And so as we pray, our worship team will come and will focus then our efforts on worshiping King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Thanks. Good morning again. Glad you're all here. Why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the passage, if you have not already, uh, that Jay just read, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you're using uh, the big print Bible here that I have, it's page 1511. Matthew, the first gospel in in the New Testament, chapter 8, is where we are going to be this morning. uh, We will take a look at part one here uh, in in the power of the king. I've entitled it uh, Power Over Defilement. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 demonstrates to us that Jesus has the power over defilement, both physical defilement and, more importantly, spiritual defilement. I I pray that you're there. Uh, Let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. Father, be well pleased by all that we do. I pray that your spirit would come among us in power, uh, come upon me so that I might speak your word faithfully and truthfully, and then apply uh, your uh, inspired word to our hearts and our lives. May we see in this uh, defiled, diseased Uh, a man who came to Jesus full of faith and confidence, recognizing who he is to find healing. Lord, may we see ourselves in him, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, it was my third year of seminary and uh, three out of, uh, in theory, four. So I got a degree that was supposed to be four years, 120 hours in four years. Of course, I stretched that into about five uh, because that's, that's quite, quite a lot. And in my third year, I was just over that proverbial hump. Things uh, seemed to be uh, going really well. I was making decent grades. I was enjoying seminary. And I had begun to, to talk uh, to a young woman uh, who eventually would be my wife. Uh, and that is Shelley. Of course, I was very intrepid. I was, you know, very nervous about that. And so we had just, just began, I just got the nerve to, you know, talk to her and things were going great. And I was at a youth group party and uh, we were outside playing basketball or football or something with my students. And I came inside just to kind of pat my, my face with water. And I was like, you know, my neck kind of itches. I just kind of, you know, did this. And I had a little, a little red spot, a little irritation around my neck. Didn't think anything of it. Uh, and uh, long, to make a long story short, short here, uh, came to realize over the next few days or weeks that uh, I had somehow uh, acquired uh, shingles. And uh, usually if you have any knowledge or experience with shingles, uh, my apologies, I sympathize with you. They are not fun. They're very painful. 
Typically, you sort of get them on your torso. Um, but I, for some odd reason, got shingles right here, right on my neck. It was very sensitive. It was very painful. Um, but not only that, it was very uh, difficult for me to handle. See, I was very, um, I was very aware and cognizant of how I looked, sort of maybe insecure about that. And, and uh, it, it just was almost devastating to me. I was, I was very uh, ashamed. I felt very ashamed. I felt, felt very dirty. I almost felt defiled, to use a, a biblical term. I, I didn't want to go to class. It was very much a struggle of self-image to me. I, I had these large, red, uh, blotchy things uh, here on my neck. I just started to talk to Shelly, and I was like, no, how could this happen? Um, it was hard, you know, and, and, and uh, not to make light of that, as difficult of a time as that was for me, I can't imagine what it's like to have another type of skin disease. I can't imagine what it's like to have what the Bible calls leprosy. I can't imagine what it was like to be the man in the passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 8. It must have been unimaginably awful, the feeling of being defiled, of being incurably dirty, irreversibly sick, unconditionally excluded. See, to be a leper in Jesus' day was to live in isolation. It was to live in guilt and in shame. It was an incurable disease, only to be presented by the priest to be documented. No hope and no cure could be found. This man could not live inside the city walls. He was required to have his outer garment, like his coat, so to speak, always ripped as a sign of his deep grief and agony. He was to always go about bareheaded, uh, kind of like I am right now. And uh, he was to always have his beard covered with his garment. Separated from loved ones, separated from Jewish society, he had to warn those wherever he went of the coming defilement by calling out, unclean, unclean, to make those aware that he was coming into his vicinity. He could not touch anyone nor be touched. He was not to join people in the temple worship, excluded from society, excluded in a sense from from worshiping God. And as if the pain and the shame and the isolation of this man that we read in chapter 8 was not enough. See, lepers in Jesus' day lived with a, a spiritual stigma. They were sort of marked with a moral stigma because in the Old Testament, right, Oftentimes, leprosy was regarded as a punishment from God. We see that happening, that God did indeed punish people with leprosy. Think of Miriam. Think of Gehazi. Think of Uzziah, right? So this is is precedence. And so there was this separation, this shame, this pain, this defilement, and there was a moral element to it as well. Physically defiled, socially defiled, spiritually defiled, This leper was certainly the scourge of Jewish society. So the question then uh, that Matthew brings to us in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8 is how will Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, respond to such a person? How would Jesus treat sort of the lowest of the low in Jewish society? Well, we're going to find out here in a minute. As I I said uh, at our introduction here, This is the first of three miracles that Matthew begins with that deals with people. And of course, Jesus is going to deal with a leper, an outcast, socially unacceptable. Jesus deals with that type of person here. And in doing so, 
He reveals to us that he has the power over defilement, both physical defilement and spiritual defilement. So, four major movements here in these four verses. They correlate with the verses, very easy to follow. First of all, in verse 1, we see the multitudes. In verse 2, we see the man, that is, the leprous man. In verse 3, we get a look at the master, the master's response in verse 3. And then in verse 4, we see the mandate, the mandate that Jesus gives after healing this leprous man. Well, let's begin in verse 1 as we take a look at the multitudes. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Remember, this is on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on this hill. He preached this great sermon. It's a transition verse from the words of Jesus uh, on the mountain to the works of Jesus off of the mountain, right? So there's a transition from words to works. The text tells us that many people were astonished at his teaching back in chapter 7. They were just in awe of his words. And so it should not surprise us then that Matthew records that large crowds followed him. They were interested in this guy, right? They wanted to hear more. And so they began to follow him. But we move from uh, verse 1 to verse 2, the multitudes to the man, as the story moves from the crowds that followed Jesus to one man in particular who wanted to follow Jesus in verse 2. Let's take a look at the man in verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I want us to see three things about this man from verse 2. First of all, notice the man's condition. Second of all, notice the man's coming. And then third, notice the man's confidence. His condition, his coming, and his confidence. We see it play out in the text, right? Look again. A man with what? Leprosy, right? So first of all, Matthew tells us about the man's condition. And for Matthew's hearers to hear about a man with leprosy, they would know what this looked like. They would know what it smelt like. They would know the Old Testament text that talked about leprosy. It all informed this picture of a leprous man in this condition. See, in the Old Testament, leprosy was sort of a a broad word for any skin condition. It could be minor, or it could be actually what we consider the disease today of leprosy, which, of course, was incurable, always ended in death, and was slow and painful and awful. It began small, it grows rapidly, it began to decay and rot various parts of the body. And as we mentioned earlier, um, leprosy in the Old Testament and on into the New was a picture. It was a portrait of the ravages of human sin in our hearts and in our lives. It was a picture of human sin. Just like leprosy, sin deforms us spiritually. It disables us morally. And it separates us both from other people, like leprosy did, and it separates us from God, in a sense, like leprosy did. In addition, like leprosy, we see that sin in the Bible, this incurable condition, this devastating disease, which the Bible calls sin, is incurable by any human strength, by any human effort. Friends, only God can heal the disease of sin in our hearts and in our lives. So, in a sense then, when we see the man's condition, when we see his condition, Matthew doesn't want us just to see his condition. 
Matthew wants us to see whose condition? Our condition as well. So let me ask you very bluntly, friends. Do you believe this about yourself? Do you believe that you are racked with the disease of sin? Do you believe it about your children? Do you believe it about every single human being that has ever lived on this earth aside from Jesus Christ? Do you believe in this sinful disease, this condition, about every human that's ever lived? See, when we see the desperate and the helpless physical state of this leper, we are to see in him the desperate, helpless, spiritual state of our own hearts. Friends, do you realize that you have this disease? It is in the depths of of all members of your body, and it's worse. It's worse than leprosy. Can't you see how this disease separates you from a holy God whose requirement to have a relationship with him is absolute obedience to his law in word and in deed and in motivation? It defiles us. Can't you see, friends, how sin disqualifies us for a relationship with him? In the starting place, the starting place for this man and his disease was the realization of his condition. It's the same for me and you. We have to begin here, realizing our fallen, sinful, diseased condition. Well, we see the man's condition, but we also see his coming. Notice, right? A man with leprosy, what's the verb there? Came. Small word, huge deal. A man with leprosy came. It's a verb. It's an action word, right? Now, now perhaps, perhaps, we don't know this, but just perhaps, The man was sort of on the outskirts of the crowd as the Sermon on the Mount was being preached. Perhaps he just, he heard some of Jesus' words in that sermon. Maybe he heard Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Maybe he hears these words and he says in his heart, I'm going to take Jesus up on his offer. Now, Now the man we can't think of it that he just sort of walked up to Jesus without any, any notice, right? Without anybody noticing. Undoubtedly, as he drew near, he, he, he said out loud, unclean, unclean, right? He had to. And undoubtedly, the, the, the crowds that were following Jesus just parted like the Red Sea, right? You hear those words and you get out of Dodge. The leper is approaching and he's coming near to the master, And here I think we see a key truth in this story. The man not only realized his condition of leprosy, but he knew who to go to. Did he not? He knew who to go to to fix his condition. He knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was. Jesus was the one who could fix his leprous condition, his defilement. And so what does the text say? He came. He came to Jesus. Friends, we must do the same. We must do the same. When we come to grips with our lost and defiled condition as human beings, as sinful people, we then only have one place to go with our condition. There's one man to go to to fix our sin problem. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Men and women, boys and girls, let me be clear. You have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus, just as this man did. It's a willful choice, a time and place in your life when you turn from all other things 
to make you right with God, to all other hope of morality or righteousness, of all other hope of being right with God and, and, and getting into heaven. You must turn from all of that and you must make the willful decision to come to Jesus as the only one who can fix your spiritual problem, which is sin. So the man, we saw his condition, we saw his coming. But how did he come to Jesus? Notice thirdly, his, con- his confidence, right? A man with leprosy came, and then number one, we see a, a, his physical actions, do we not? A man with leprosy came, and what did he do? He knelt before him. He, he comes to Jesus, the right guy to come to, and he has confidence. He, he, he kneels before Jesus. This posture reveals a bit of something of, what, of who he thinks Jesus is. Because this word that's translated here in the NIV, to kneel, oftentimes in the New Testament, uh, is translated to worship. So the picture is this. The man comes to Jesus, and he, and he kneels before Jesus in worship of Jesus. He recognizes, he believes something about Jesus here. He believes he is God incarnate, the King of Israel, the Jewish Messiah. Notice what he calls him. We see his, his deeds, and now we see his words. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and, and said, what did he call Jesus? What? Lord. Friends, this is important. He comes to Jesus. He bows down in a state of worship, and he calls him Lord. Interestingly enough, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that anybody recognizes or calls Jesus Lord. That's key. It's not a disciple. It's not a religious leader. No. Who's the greatest theologian in Israel right then in that moment? It's this guy. He recognizes something about Jesus. He calls him Lord. He came to him with confidence. Notice his words. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, he doesn't say if you can, will you, right? He doesn't say that. And say, if you can, will you? He says, if you will, you can. Again here, just think about, think about what this guy is asking Jesus to do. Think about the supernatural nature of the request that he is making. Because in the Old Testament, God alone heals the leper. In the Old Testament, no man heals the leper. God alone heals the leper. And more than that, 2 Kings chapter 5 uh, reveals to us that the Jewish people as a whole thought that healing a leper was uh, more difficult or as difficult as raising a person from the dead. So what is this man asking of Jesus? He's saying, in a sense, I am dead. And I'm coming to you as the God-man who alone can do what I am asking you to do. He asked Jesus for the impossible, friends, because he knew that with God, with Jesus, all things are possible. But you know what? We have to come to Jesus with the very same confidence, do we not? We not only have to recognize our condition and we have to come to Jesus, but when we come to Jesus, we come with the very same confidence, recognizing that he is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate, that he is Lord and Master and King, and that he has all the ability in the world to heal us from this disease of sin in our life. We don't come to him as just another man. We don't come to him as like a good or moral teacher, right? 
We're not coming to him just to, to learn a new way of life. We are coming to him as God, bowing the knee in worship. Lord, I am a sinful man who has an unhealable condition. Heal me, Lord. It's great. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. So as we move then from verse 1 and the multitudes into verse 2, we see the man, right, his condition and his coming and his confidence. Notice the master's response in verse 3. Was Jesus willing? Yes, Jesus was willing. You know, from time to time, uh, one of my kids will come to me and ask me for something. And it's typically like something they shouldn't have, right? So Kool-Aid or a candy or dessert or something like that. And they will come and ask me for something, and I will say, I don't know, uh, you know, what have you had today? I don't know what you've eaten. Have you, have you asked mom yet is kind of my typical default answer. Why don't you just go ask mom? And in, in occasion, occasionally, one of them will say, no, I'm not going to ask mom because I know she's going to say no, right? I'm just not even going to ask because I know that she will say no, and rightly so, right? Mom knows best. Friends, when Jesus, uh, when this man approaches Jesus, right, this man approaches Jesus, he, d- he doesn't have that response, right? He has confidence that Jesus can. Will you, Jesus? And Jesus says, I am willing. So verbally, Jesus responds in verse 3. I am willing, be clean. But first, something amazing happens. Did you notice that at the beginning of verse 3? It's amazing. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Now think about that for a moment. Who is he touching? A man with an incurable disease that spreads by touch, right? And Jesus touches the man. The original Jewish audience that that Matthew writes to would have gasped. You don't do this. You don't want to be defiled yourself. You don't want to catch it. And then two, you don't want to become ceremonially unclean. You don't do this. But Jesus physically affirms he's willing to heal him. He places his hand on the man. He verbally affirms it. I am willing. And then what does he say? He just declares it to be so, right? Yeah, I'll heal you. Be clean. That's amazing. The... The very God who in the beginning said, let there be light and light shone in the universe. Here says to this man, be clean. And he has the power to make it happen. Immediately the text says, he, speaking of the man, he was cleansed of his leprosy. And the amazing, ironic, and very significant thing here is that to heal this man from his uh, ceremonial uncleanliness and his physical defilement, Jesus himself had to become ceremonially unclean, right? He touched him. He chose to take that upon himself. Now, isn't that a great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from the defilement of sin? Now, notice, what did Jesus first do? First, with this man, Jesus declared that the man was clean, Didn't he not? Be clean. And then he proceeds to make him clean. And friends, that's how the gospel works. When we come to Jesus, he is willing to make us clean from guilt and shame and the penalty of our sins if we simply ask him in faith as this leper did. And then what does Jesus do? 
He declares us to be spiritually clean. He declares us to be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, before a holy God, when in reality, me and you are not absolutely holy and clean. Correct? I don't know about you, but I still sin. Christians sin after they are forgiven of their sins, right? He declares us to be clean. The Bible calls it justification, this legal declaration that though we are not guilty, I mean, though we are not unguilty, though we are guilty, let me make that clear, though we are guilty, God declares us to be not guilty, right? The judge rules innocent, though, while in fact we are clean. And then what does Jesus do throughout the duration of our lifetime? When we become Christians, we place our faith in Jesus, a declaration of righteousness is given, and then the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are united with Christ, and then we begin to walk in faith and obedience, and there is growth and maturity. And guess what happens? We actually become more and more clean, if you will, more and more holy until the day that he brings us to glory. And he declares not only that we are clean, but he actually makes us what he intends for us to be. Great picture of the gospel. Notice the fourth thing. In verse 4, we see the mandate. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer, offer the gift Moses commanded, which you can find in Leviticus chapter 14, as a testimony to them. Now, this happens in the gospels. And we... Sh- we shake our heads, we, we scratch, we don't understand. So there's this miraculous healing. A leper has been cleansed from his leprosy, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. What? There's, listen, there are reasons for this, I believe. We don't have to go into it now. That's not the point in this passage. What is the point? Don't tell anyone, but what is the man supposed to do? His healing was meant to be a specific testimony to a particular group of people. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. See, his healing was a specific miracle for the priests working in the temple in Jerusalem. That would be Jesus' calling card. And so when the priest would go to work that day and, and this man came and he says, here's my sacrifice. I've been healed of leprosy. The priest would probably say, that's impossible. That, no, that doesn't happen very often, right? It hasn't happened in a long, long time. But then he would go through the process in Leviticus 14 and declare, this man was a leper, and now he has been cleansed. What was that supposed to teach this priest? When the healed leper said, Jesus of Nazareth did this for me. And you're a priest? You think you look into that? Think you might want to investigate who that guy is? You bet. It's interesting that Jesus wanted this man's healing to be a testimony, to be a sort of salt and light, to demonstrate the power of God to heal and to cleanse. And friends, isn't that true of us? Doesn't God want those of us who have been forgiven of our sins by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be a witness, so to speak. Yes, in word, absolutely, but also in deed, so that when people look at us, they say, there is a spiritual leper that has been cleansed by Jesus. Amen? People are to look at us and say, you once were white as snow like a leper, and now you're made clean. You're different. Something has happened. Who has cleansed you? And we say, Jesus of Nazareth, right? 
So, in closing, friends, we're going to respond in song with a song that talks about our hope is built on nothing less. Friends, what is your hope, your confidence to be right with God, to have an eternity in heaven? What is your confident hope built upon this morning? Is it built upon the man, Jesus Christ, his work, his absolutely perfect life in your place, his death on the cross for your sins, his powerful resurrection to offer you new and eternal life? Is your hope built on that? Have you had the experience that this leper has had, recognizing your sinful condition, coming to Jesus with confidence that he is the Son of God who is able to cleanse us of all of our sins. You can make me clean. Have you had that experience this morning? If not, then you pray with me now as the worship team comes forward as we pray, and we're going to respond in song, thinking and worshiping Jesus, our great cornerstone. Would you pray with me all together now?